Dana is one of the most godly men that I know. Like um, everyday life, it's I seriously call him for advice all the time, and I talk to him. And even in the transitions that have been going through church, you know, Dana was the first one that I called, and I was like, you know, what do I do? You know, which direction do I go? And here, here, here are my doubts. Here are the things that I'm encouraged by. And and he's he's just walked with me through life, through through the tough times and with kids and. They've got girls. He copied me. I'd have a girl. He'd have a girl. I'd have a girl. But he won up me. He had four. <laughs> I only had three. And so, uh, but anyways, through life, you know, we've just kind of gone back and forth. Mostly I've asked for his advice, but but I'm, I'm extremely honored to have him here. I've been wanting to get him here for a while. Um, but if you'll come up, Dana. This is Dana Watson, the man, the legend. <laughs> and I'll turn it over to him. Thank you. Good. Can you hear me? Awesome. Well, thanks for inviting me, Justin. It took four years, but uh, it's, it's fine. I, I enjoy doing this, just sharing uh, what God's put on my heart, uh, sort of how he has uh, saved me and used me in a certain way to impact the lives of children. So I'm always excited to share uh, what we're doing at the Alabama Baptist Children's Homes. Now, I know this in the Baptist church, uh, but we do ministry. And so I like to just share about uh, what that ministry looks like. And I do wear ties sometimes, although today I didn't. So, uh, but I did text him this morning and ask him, hey, what should I wear? He said, well, if you wear a tie, you're going to be overdressed. And so, uh, so I didn't do that. And we did. We had three girls. They had three. We had three. And then I just went ahead and had another one because I like to win. So, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so we have four girls and I guess they're in children's church, so uh, well, good. Well, I uh, I'm honored to be here, and thank you. And I hope I'm at least half as good as you think I'm going to be. I'm not sure, but uh, this morning I got up. My wife's here today. She doesn't always come with me. I got up this morning. And I was shaving, and I cut myself. I don't know if you can see it from where you are, but I did. It just happens, you know. I got a little anxious. She said, "What happened to your neck?" I said, "I cut myself shaving." She said, "Well, it looks awful." And I said, well, I was thinking about my sermon, and I cut my neck. She said, I'm sure that the folks at the church would like it better if you would think about your neck and cut your sermon. (laughs) You like that? I got more. They're coming. So anyway. So I have been with the Alabama Baptist Children's Homes for, what's that, 10 years now? A decade. Uh, I'll be 40 in nine days, uh, so I feel ancient, but I know some folks out there are like, that's really young, you're, you're fine, you got ways to go, but uh, I love the ministry uh, that I've been a part of, uh, mainly because I see the lives that it impacts daily. Uh, you know, uh, we, we, uh, we have four things that we do, so I'll just run through these real quick, because people always say, I didn't know you did all those things, but one thing that we do, can you, anybody know anything about the children's home, can you tell me one thing that we do? What was that? Minister to children through campus care. So at 6512 Greelot Road, you ever seen that sign on Greelot? Just west of Hillcrest, there are two houses, a boy's house and a girl's house. We have Christian couples that are hired to be in those homes 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Their schedule is 12 days on, four days off. And so they are the mom and dad for those children um, until they go home or until they are adopted. And so uh, those kids are school aides. You know, 6 to 18 years old, and they come to us primarily through DHR. Uh, they've been neglected, abused, and abandoned. Uh, 
statistics say that 84% of our kids have been sexually abused. Uh, a lot have been physically, physically abused, and then a lot of cases that we get nowadays have to do with drug abuse and drug addiction. And so those kids are there uh, either for three months to maybe four years. It used to be that kids would stay with us for like 12 to 18 years. In fact, we had three girls that stayed with us for 18 years. Uh, but we don't see cases like that anymore because the push is for children to have a forever family. And we like that because that's what we want. Our, our mission is to protect, nurture, and restore children and families through Christ-centered services. And so if we didn't share the gospel with children, I'd do something else. I'd go sell insurance or be on staff of a church or something. But I love that we share the gospel because I feel like that's the only lasting, penetrating solution to the problems that these children face. And so, um, so those kids come in and we, we love on them. We share the gospel with them. And then the second thing we do is foster homes, which is also ministering to children. We license our own foster families. I'm the one that signs off on everybody saying they're good folks. We do interviews uh, with the husband, then with the wife, and then we do an interview together. We're a lot more intentional about uh, finding out the, you know, about the family and, and their history and how they parent and things like that, a lot more than DHR would be. Because I want to be able to say that if anything happened to me and Ashley, that I would place any of my children in any of our foster homes. And I can say that now. Um, and so that's important to me. Uh, we have about 16 foster families, um, just under 30 foster children uh, in Mobile County. And so that's another way. If, God's laid on your heart to serve in that way, I can obviously share with you what that means and what that looks like. So uh, the third thing is Pathways Professional Counseling. We have a counseling site right there at Greelock Hillcrest. Uh, he, uh, Larry Daniels travels to Chatham, Flumerton, and Baldwin County as well to do counseling services. So we counsel anybody, not just children, individuals, uh, adults, children, couples, and families. So our, our rate is $80 an hour. That sounds like a lot, doesn't it? But if you come into our counseling offices and you say, hey, I need counseling, I need help, but all I can do is $5 a week, we're not going to turn you away. We're going to provide professional counseling to you at whatever rate you can pay. Now, we want you to pay something so that you have some buy-in, uh, but Larry will, will see you uh, for anything that you have an issue with. So, uh, and then the fourth thing we have is family care. Uh, we sold our family care home and are going to build a new home. But family care is where we take moms and their children together because we were seeing moms bring their kids to us and they were saying, hey, you know, my husband left me. I got kicked out of my apartment. I've got these children. I have nowhere to go. So we have a, ref a referral uh, application interview process that we bring these moms into this uh, family care home where they're, they're living with other moms and children, uh, more like, like a shelter. But it's, it's not like a shelter where they can just sit all day. Uh, they have to work the program. So the program is... You do uh, goals and steps, you do um, you know, a life plan, uh, learn to do a budget, access resources for yourself, get a job, all these things that we do every day. We sort of take for granted that that's something that everybody can do, but these moms have no idea how to manage money or how to live life uh, without being dependent upon someone else. So we want them to learn to be independent and provide for themselves and their children. So that program uh, can run from three months to 12 months, sometimes longer, depending on, as long as mom's moving forward, doing what she's uh, said she wanted to do for her kids and herself, I'll let her stay. And so we're going to build a facility at a university just down from SADS Healthcare next to Magnolia Mortgage that'll house seven families. And so that'll be done by the end of this year. Uh, it's an expensive project. Uh, anytime you build something, uh, even if it's, if it's considered commercial, they like to charge you a lot for that. So 
Uh, and Mobile has some strict laws about uh, where you can build and what you can build. So uh, we're finally past those hurdles. So that's our fourth thing. So campus care, foster care, counseling, and family care. So now you know everything I know. All right? So we're good on that. Now, I wouldn't want to come here to your church on a Sunday morning and just give you facts. Okay? I want to share with you what God has placed on my heart for you to hear. Everybody okay with that? This is a Bible teaching church. And so I wanted to be able to just share uh, a little bit uh, about my life, but also what God has placed on my heart. So if you'll turn to James chapter 1. I did a devotion this week, so I lost James. James chapter 1. Okay. It's a familiar verse. You'll know it as soon as I start to say it, as soon as you see it in your Bible. So when I first started working for the children's home, I was a development associate. And I was walking down the hallway, and there was a foster mom there, and she had a baby been a carrier. That baby had a black eye. And I said to her, what happened to that baby? Did it fall? You know, did, did an accident happen? And she said to me, Dana, that baby had a bad daddy. And that the baby was crying and the dad couldn't get the baby to stop crying. Mom had gone to the store. And so dad became agitated at the baby and hit the baby in the face and broke the bone around its eye. And I thought, man, that's insane. I mean, why do people do that? Why do people hurt innocent or independent children? Why do bad things happen to these children? The truth is, I don't know the answer. I've read the Bible, and I know there are three things I'm going to share with you as to why bad things happen to God's people or good people or innocent people. But ultimately, I don't know the answer. God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And his purposes, uh, sometimes as, a, as, as we look through history or look through uh, events or situations that happen, we say, I don't understand why this happened. But God does. Even if we don't know on this side of heaven, uh, there is a purpose in it. So it says in James, My brother, count all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be complete, lacking nothing. Well, I'll be honest with you. I've been through some trials in my life. When I first got saved, I think I was about 15 years old. And I didn't really trust God. I didn't know I could trust God. I didn't know that he would help me to get through situations in my life. I had a hard time trusting. When I was a kid, I had a bike. Anybody had a bike when you were a kid? That's all we did was ride bikes, right? So I would ride my bike around the trailer park where I lived. And on my bike, I had a horn. And it was a loud horn. And I honked that horn as much as I could. I had a black little bulb, you know, bubble. And I, I would blow it all day long around that trailer park. So one day, the guy at the corner of the tra uh, trailer park, he was the maintenance guy. He saw me riding by. He said, hey, son, would you like for me to make that horn louder? I said, sure. Who doesn't want their horn to be louder, right? <laughs> so I pulled up, and this guy fixed up. In fact, he had a cabinet on his table that he was working on, so I knew he could make it louder. He could do exactly what he said he could. He walked over to my bike, and he took a screwdriver. He unscrewed it from my handlebars, walked over to his workbench, laid it flat. Now, 
Horns were made out of metal back then, not plastic, cheap like today. He took his hammer off his belt, and he hammered it flat. <clears throat> Walked over my bike, screwed it back to the handlebars, said, there you go. And I drove away on my bike, and I believed it was going to be louder. <laughs> but it wasn't. <laughs> it never made another sound. <laughs> and that's exactly what he wanted. And it was that day, even at six years old, I realized you can't trust everybody. There are people in your life you can't trust. So I didn't know if I could trust God. So when I got saved, I saw there were older people who had lost businesses, they had lost children, they had been through wars, and they said, God has never failed me. I said, man, if God's never failed them, maybe he won't fail me. So I kind of leaned in on their faith, on their testimony. But I've been through some some things myself, and I can stand today as a testimony to say to you, God has never failed me. He'll never fail you. So there's, there's an old argument in the Bible. It says if God is all-knowing and all-powerful, then he can stop bad things from happening. Yet bad things still happen. So, neither, so either God is not all-powerful or he is not all-knowing. Some go so far to say that he doesn't care to stop bad things from happening. Well, we know that God is all-powerful. We know that he is all-knowing. And then we know that he loves us because the Bible tells us so. So then the question still remains, why? I believe there are three reasons why bad things can happen to good people, God's people, innocent people. One is disobedience to God's word. Sometimes we can make a choice that affects our walk with the Lord and brings us outside of his will and opens up our lives for his attacks, for the Satan's attacks. So when I first started reading this before I became a Christian, it's about 11 years old and started reading it. Because, you know, everybody reads the Bible and they say, you need to read the Bible. So I started reading it. To me, this book was old. It was wooden. It was dusty. It was ancient literature, like Shakespeare. It didn't make sense to me. It was these and thous, do's and don'ts, and that was all I read. But when I became a Christian and I read the Bible, it became alive to me. It became moving and breathing and illuminated by God's Spirit so that when I read it, I, I, I was instructed by it. I was trained by it. And, and you can go back and read the same passage over and over and still get something different from it if you're in tune with God's Spirit. Obedience to God's Word is important. It protects us. It doesn't fence us in. Another story about me being a kid on a big wheel before my bike incident, right? Had a big wheel. What's, what's a big wheel look like? You might know. Got a big wheel on the front, little wheels in the back, kind of sitting on the ground, really. Some people don't know what a big wheel is, but they still make those? Maybe. So I like to ride my big wheel. My mom and dad were never married, um, and my dad was sort of a nomad. He'd go from place to place, and he ended up back at my grandmother's house, and I found out he was at grandma's house, and I was like, that's great, because I could see grandma and dad at the same time. And I wanted to see him, or I was going to see him that next weekend. Well, I got excited, because grandma's uh, yard, her front yard was on a curve, big front yard, had a sidewalk out front, so it was on a curve like this. And on either corner was a light pole with bushes at the bottom. And I knew that when I got to grandma's house, I could go out front, and right on that sidewalk. And that's the first thing I did. Got there, pulled my big wheel out of the trunk, went up to my dad, gave him a hug, and I said, hey, 
Can I ride my, my big wheel? He said, sure. But one rule. Don't go outside of the light poles at the corner of the front yard. I said, fine. I'll ride that all day. So I went out there and went back and forth and back and forth. Well, guess what happened? I got bored. I thought, how great would it be to go around that bush, to go past that light pole and see what's on the other side? But I remember what my dad said. So I stayed out front for a little while. I looked at the window. Dad wasn't looking. I got my courage up, and I began to go around that light pole. Got out into the street, and a car came. And it hit my big wheel, and I spun like a top. I was okay, but it was then I realized why my dad said, don't go around the bush. It was because he knew a car could come, and I could be hit. That's exactly what happened. He knew that I could get hurt. He was trying to protect me. Jesus said, I came that you might have life, and you might have it more abundantly. Doing that means obeying God's word. He's not trying to fence you in to keep you from having fun. God's trying to protect you from what he knows can hurt you. Sin is fun for a season, for a period of time, and it could ruin your life. So we see parents of children who have had their lives ruined because they go their own way, they choose happiness over holiness. It can ruin your life. Disobedience to God's word. The other is the sin of others can cause bad things to happen to you. Someone else can make a choice that affects others around them in a negative way. Think about a drunk driver that goes out, drinks, picks up his keys, gets in the car, drives down the road, falls asleep, goes across the double center line, hits an oncoming car, and that family's life is forever changed. They're sitting in this world, amen, all around us. You ever watch the news? I hate watching the news. I try to be a good citizen and watch the news, but it's depressing. It's murder, rape, robbery, pet adoption, murder, rape, robbery. <laughs> I try to break it up with something positive, but you know what they're trying to do. The news is always, it just seems negative. So we live in a world that's full of sin. I've told kids before when I was a youth minister, I said, you know, a fish that's born in salt water, raised in salt water, when we catch it and we cook it and we put it on your plate, when you open it up and you eat the meat from inside of it, it's not salty. You can live in a sinful world without allowing sin to penetrate you. You can be uh, holy before a God that loves and cares for you. All the things they say about God, grace, love, mercy, friend, all these things are true. But the one thing the angels repeat over and over in heaven is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. He's holy. And it's only by Jesus' sacrifice that we can enter into his presence, that we can have a worship service like we had a few minutes ago and walk right into his presence. You know what happened to people who came into God's presence without preparing themselves? What happened? They died. The high priest would have to prepare himself before he could go and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. He'd have to prepare himself. He was the only man who could do it. But just in case, they put a rope around his waist. In case he didn't make it, they dragged him out. But right now, in an attitude of prayer, you can close your eyes and enter into, enter into the Holy of Holies. That's amazing to me.
and we take it for granted. You can be holy before God. The third thing, God wants to bring glory to himself or to help others, help you to grow. Bad things happen because God wants to bring glory to himself or help us grow. Does God cause these things to happen? No. He allows them. It's God's sovereignty that keeps many other bad things from happening to us. God keeps Satan in check. So, ever heard the story of Lazarus? He died, right? He was sick. Jesus heard about it. He said, Lazarus, your friend, he's sick. So Jesus didn't run to his aid. What did he say? He said, this sickness will not lead into death. Right? But then Lazarus dies. He shows up. The Bible says he waited. I said Terry, but some of us say, what does that mean? He waited. He stayed. He didn't rush to Lazarus' side. But when he got there, he'd been dead four days. And in Jewish customs, three days, they believed the spirit hovered around the body. That if there was an opportunity to come back to life again, uh, it happens within that three days. You know, that's why they used to have wakes, just in case they're really not dead. Uh, we still have wakes, even though we're positive. But, uh, you know, but wakes, that's, that's customarily, tr- traditionally, why we have wakes. But the body hovers, uh, the, the spirit hovers around the body for three days. So at four days, they were, they were positive Lazarus was not alive. And that's why Jesus waited. So I said, by this time, he stinks. He said, well, if you just have faith, he'll come forth. And so Jesus says something that I think shows us that even in a bad situation, he wants to bring glory to himself. Then he said, take away the stone from the place where the dead man is lying. And Jesus lifted his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But for those people who are standing around, I've said this that they may believe that you sent me. Lazarus died for a purpose, so that people would know that Jesus was the Messiah. Sometimes we go through a situation, and we don't know why. But our reaction to trials reveals our heart. But it can also reveal Jesus to everybody around us. It's like taking a bowl off of a light in the dark. If your reaction is Christ-like, Christ-centered to a tragedy, it just lights a beam to everybody who sees it. And Ashley's old church, home church, there was a lady who had her son uh, die from a drug overdose. He was in jail and passed away. And that was sad. It's a sad time for a while. Still, Still a sad thing for her. But when I saw her walk up front and raise her hands... And sing and worship a God that created her son and took him home. That increased my faith. I said, wow. Even through her trial, she praised God. Instead of asking questions, which she had plenty, she worshiped the God who made him. Sometimes those trials can make us grow. I've been through some things, and I said, man, why am I dealing with this? Why am I having to go through this? Then when I get through it, I see God's purpose. So bottom line is, God loves us enough to give us choices. We're not just robots programmed to do the will of God. We do it out of love for him. We don't do the right things so that we can receive blessings. Justin said it well earlier. 
You know, we don't give offerings so that we can receive blessings. We don't do the right things so God will see that we're doing the right things and bless us. We do it because we love God. We do things for the Lord, deeds for the Lord. We, we, we serve people because we are Christians, not to become Christians. So we do it because we love him and we want to express that love to him uh, through our actions and so that others around us can see him through us. You know, the Bible said, never said that God won't give you more than you can handle. I've heard people say that to others at a funeral or as they go through a trial. They say, you know, you don't have to worry. God will never give you more than you can handle. That's not true. So where did we get that? We got that from 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where it says, No temptation has overcome you except that is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. He was talking about sin, not suffering. Because if we're so, if, if, if what we go through doesn't test and stretch us, if God won't give us more than we can bear, then why do we need God? When I go through a trial, I have to lean in hard to him. Otherwise, it'll break. I need him. So these kids, when they come to us, a lot of times they come straight from school. Uh, when I work for DHR, that's how you do it. I don't want to get a court order and show up at the house where mom and dad are, where there's weapons, where they know the house and I don't know the house. They know what's there and I don't. I'd rather get a court order, go to the school, show the principal. The principal brings the children to me. They get in my car and I remove them from family. Now People will almost always say, I don't know how you did that. I have no idea how you could take a child from their family, but if you had seen the conditions they lived in or knew the things that were happening to them in their own home, you would absolutely be able to remove that child from that home. We don't, uh, the state, people say, well, they, they do it arbitrarily. In some cases, maybe they do. But every case that I removed a child from their home, it was entirely necessary, and I was happy to do it. So they'll come to us, usually with a school uniform on, backpack on their shoulder, and they're absolutely confused. No, they have no idea why they're here with us. A similar group of five came into my office, and they were upset. And uh, the worker brought them into our assembly room. We gave them coloring books. We turned on cartoons. We gave them popcorn. We're just trying to you know, help them through this transition. You know? So I said to the worker, do they even know what's going on? She said, well, I haven't told them. I just picked them up from school. I said, well, can I tell them? What's happening? They didn't know something. So I brought them in my office, and I explained to them this is a good place. I understand they're upset because they don't understand what's going on. They don't know what's coming. They're afraid. And when I said afraid, the five-year-old kids just started bawling, just afraid, not knowing what's happening. I said, well, you've been removed from your family because someone thought that you were in imminent or immediate danger. I said, but you're in a good place. We're going to love you here. We're going to take care of you here. You'll find out that it's a really good place to be until you can go back to your family. And you'll see your mom next week. you have a visit. So uh, any questions? Little girl raised her hand. What you got? She said, but I don't understand. We weren't in danger. But I know why they came into care. And they were absolutely in danger. But it was normal to her. It was what, what, is, what we would think is abnormal is normal to them because that's what they live in. That's the environment they thrive in, they see every day. But almost every kid that comes to us feels beat down, intimidated, hurt. 
So I, I share a story to illustrate this. Uh, anybody know Jerry Clower? I'm going to lose some young people in this. I know. I do every time. I told a church that was too good, too, too young and too trendy for me, uh, skinny jeans and, and, and V-neck shirts. And I told this joke, and it bombed. It absolutely bombed. It was silence. <laughs> Not even a courtesy laugh. So if you want to give me a courtesy laugh, you can't. So Jerry Clower tells a story, okay? And uh, he says that he and Jim Ed Brown and the Jims, that was a band, did a show in Houston. And they agreed that after this show, they would meet back at the hotel for a late supper. And so the show was over. It went fine. Jerry Clower said he walked into the hotel, and he walked past the lobby down the hallway to get to the banquet room. And when he walked past the lobby, this guy jumped out and said, I'm the biggest, baddest man in Texas, and I can whoop you. I got a list of names of people I can whoop, and your name's on there right at the top, Jerry Clower. He said, fine. I don't want to fight you. You're one big, bad-looking dude. I just want to go eat. So he walked on by. Well, Jim Ed Brown came in, walked past the lobby. The guy jumped out, said, I'm the biggest, baddest man in Texas. What's your name? He said, my name, my name is Jim. He said, well, Jim, I want you to know that I can whoop you. I got a list of names of people I can whoop, and Jerry Clower's name's right there. I'm going to write yours right below his. He said, fine. Walked on by. Now, you understand, this guy was huge, had hair like a water buffalo. He was bad news, Okay. So then every band member that came into the hotel, he did the same thing. He intimidated them, said he could whoop them. They believed him. He wrote their name on his list. So the last guy came in. His name was John Braswell. He was the bass picker for the band. So he walks by the lobby. The guy walks up to him and grabs his shirt. He said, hey, fella, what's your name? He said, my name's John. He said, well, John, I'm the biggest, baddest man in Texas, and I can whoop you. And I got a list of names of people I can whoop, and I'm going to write your name on that, on that list. And you always know it's on there. John said, fine. He took about two or three steps, and that redneck carnal nature began to rise up in him, and he didn't like the thought of his name being on that man's list. So he turned around. He said, hey, fella, I'm not so sure you can whoop me. He said, you're not. He said, no, sir. He said, well, let me take your name off my list. <laughs> He just wanted to intimidate people. I love that joke because I never heard that, that Jerry Clower story. It was new to me. But as soon as I heard it, I laughed. And then God said to me, Satan does the same thing to us. He intimidates us. He tells us he can whoop us. And when we believe him, he writes our name on his list. But the Bible says... If we'll resist Satan, he will flee, because greater is he that lives in you than he that's in the world. You have power beyond what you even imagine. All that God has for you is yours. You have power to defeat Satan and to overcome your trials. So it's all about your perspective. I got to get my thing back right. We understand God's heart. We know that God loves us. It says that all things work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We understand our limitations to know God's ultimate plan. I said earlier that God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. For us to try to explain God, we think we're so smart. You know, we got the scientific method, everything we touch, feel, taste, see. We think we understand things because God's given us power of the mind to see things and 
and to know things. So we think we can explain God. But for us to try to explain God, it's like clay trying to explain the potter. We just can't do it. He's so much greater than we are. So we try to instill this message to the children that you're going through a trial, but God loves you, he cares for you, he has a plan for you. I love the ministry that I'm a part of because I see the lives that are changed every day. But also, because as a child, I was placed in the Alabama Baptist Children's Homes. August 29, 1987, my mom could not take care of me. My dad passed away the year before, and she placed me in the children's home at 11 years old. And uh, there were three things that I got from the children's home that I didn't get when I was with my mom. One was three square meals a day. I was so happy for that. You know, we had food stamps. I knew we had food stamps. I'd seen them before. You know, I had to rip them out of a book, no EBT card. You had to rip them out. It had like a, the Liberty Bell on it or something. And I actually bought a bike with food stamps one time. So we had food stamps. But, you know, you can sell food stamps for cash. You can sell a $20 stamp for $5 and get cash. Now, that's what my mom was doing. And we had no food in the house. But when I got to Children's Home, I was able to eat three meals a day. We take that for granted. I remember one Saturday, I got up. I'd get up so early. I don't know if y'all remember this. I had three channels, and, and the Social Security guy would wear a coat and a tie. And he was on until 7 o'clock. And, but then after that, cartoons would come on. You didn't have 24-hour cartoons. It was just Saturday. So I'd have to wait for the Social Security guy to get off the screen. So then, you know, Smurfs or something could come on. But I got up, and I was hungry. So I went to the kitchen. All we had was cornmeal and ketchup in the refrigerator. So I took a pan. I took that cornmeal, poured it in the pan, put some water in it. I stirred it up, made a little pancake for myself, patted it out, you know, put it in the stove for a few minutes, took it out, thought it was ready, put it down on the counter, and I scraped it up, put it on a napkin, put some ketchup on it, and that's what I ate for breakfast. In fact, that's what I ate that day. If it weren't for the public school system, I would not have had breakfast or lunch. Those were free to me. And supper, sometimes we skipped, or sometimes it came really late at night and it was something really cheap, like lima beans or uh, um, corn dogs, macaroni and cheese, which I love now. But I was thankful for the meals. Second thing I got from the Baptist Children's Homes was a family environment I'd never had before. That's weird, isn't it? And you'd be taken away from your family and placed with people you don't know, but yet you feel more like you're a part of a family there than you were with your mom. But when my dad passed away, she would bring these guys into the house that she met at these clubs and bars, try to complete our family, bring a dad or a father figure in my life. But a lot of times she brought more problems than solutions. When I was at DHR, uh, I had 43 kids on my caseload, and 41 did not have a father figure in their life. So she understood that a father figure was important, but you need the right kind of father figure. So I saw a lot of domestic violence, a lot of drug use, had... Uh, two sisters at the time uh, who were abused. It just wasn't a good scene. It wasn't why I went to the children's home. There was a lot happening in my house that I shouldn't see. In fact, when I was a little boy, uh, I heard some noise out in the living room and I was asleep. And It wasn't uncommon to hear fighting late at night. But because I'm inquisitive, I get up and I want to go check it out. So I go to the corner of the room where my uh, corner of the living room. My bedroom was on the corner, and I could, court, I could sort of see the living room, but they couldn't see me. My mom and, my, and her boyfriend were fighting. 
I don't know what it was about, but they were, they were pushing each other, they were saying ugly words to each other. She was telling him to get out. He said, I'm not going. She said, you got to go. You can't stay here. It's not your house. He said, I'm not leaving. Back and forth, back and forth. So my mom couldn't ever get him to leave. You know, she's a little lady. So she walked into the bedroom where my uncle was. He'd been drinking. He's passed out. So she tried to wake him up, turn the light on, try to sh- shake him, get him up. And he, he didn't budge. I mean, other than her shaking him, he didn't move. So she walked out, turned the light off, went back to the living room, began to fight again with her boyfriend. Well, it began to escalate, become more physical. And I'd seen this before, and I knew it was headed. This is about to be a fight. She left the room, went back into the bedroom. My uncle was lying down, turned the light on, shook him again, and he became upset with her for trying to wake him up a second time. So he jumped on the bed, hit the light at the top of the ceiling. We didn't have a shield, just a naked light, knocked it out with his hand. I still remember the flash jumped off the bed and began to hit my mom in the face. And her boyfriend, who was upset with her, decided it was a good time for him to do the same thing. And I'm like nine, ten years old. I can't stop this. All I can do is watch. So I went outside to try to find somebody to help. It was late at night, early in the morning. There was nobody there. Went back in. I could hear what was going on in the back, but I couldn't do anything about it. And I just sat down on the couch and I cried. Well, not long after, her boyfriend came out of the back room, and he went to his truck, and he shut the, shut the front door, went to his truck, and I thought, that's not good. I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know where he's, what he's going to go get, but I can't let him back in. So I got up, and I, shut the, I locked the door. Well, he came back, and we had a nine-light window, nine, you know, door, nine windows, you know, and uh, he knocked on the window, said, let me in. I said, no. He said, let me in. I said, I'm not going to do it. So he took his fist, he broke the window pane close to the doorknob, reached in, just unlocked it, threw it open. And I became afraid because surely what he's done to my mom, he won't think twice about doing to me. But he said one, he didn't do anything to me that day, I praise the Lord. But he, he did say one thing I'll, ne- I'll never forget. He said, what are you doing? As if I had no right to protect my mom from what he was doing to her. Well, mom came out of the back room and her face was cut off from my uncle's rings. And she had my sister in one hand, she grabbed me in the other and we walked out to go to the Speedy Mart. But they had a phone to call my aunt. And I was terrified. Because I just, when you're a kid, your imagination runs wild. Like, where are we going? What, could he pull up? Could he pull us in the truck? Could he take us somewhere and do something awful? But you know, the children's home, I never had to be afraid of anything like that. I could go, go to sleep at night and nobody would come in my room. I could go to sleep and nobody yell or shout or wake up anybody else. Nobody doing drugs or anything like that. At the children's home, I was protected. I was nurtured. And over time, I was restored. Third thing I got from the children's home was my faith. May 20th, 1990, I asked Jesus to come into my heart. And he radically saved me. Changed my mind about where I was. You know, when I went to school, I saw kids that had two parents. Some had one. My mom had hitchhiked to Virginia and married a guy half her age. And I didn't see her for three years. But I felt like I had nobody. But when I got saved, God showed me that there was a purpose in my life, that he placed me there for a reason, that he had a purpose, that he, he had a plan for me. And that plan is being revealed even to you today. Through this testimony, I'm standing up here today not because of who I am or anything I've done. I've got some degrees and certifications that allow me to do this job. But the truth is, without Christ, I am nothing and can do nothing. Without his spirit moving through me, to impact the lives of children and families. I can do nothing. So I'm a testimony. 
of what Christ can do in a bad situation. There are kids in our homes that have seen more things than I could ever see as a kid. They've experienced more things and had things happen to them that I would never want to happen to me, but they can't tell their story. They have confidentiality and privacy laws that won't allow it to happen, but I can tell mine. But they're still writing their stories, and one day they will. God had a purpose in my life. Though these were certainly bad events, he allowed them to happen so that he could be glorified. So he could be lifted up. Not the Alabama Baptist Children's Homes, but Christ. My mom uh, didn't see her a lot. Developed cancer, uh, lymphoma. And I heard about it. So I went to the hospital. And in fact, no... I heard that she was sick, didn't know what was going on. My sister didn't know what was going on, just knew she was sick. I got to the hospital, and the doctors told me that she wasn't going to make it, that she was terminal. That was, a, that was the word they used. But my sister didn't understand that, what that meant. So I had to tell my mom that she wasn't going to make it. And I wanted to share Christ with her. I would tried several times to share Christ with her. And so when I told her she wasn't going to make it, she covered her face began to cry. And I was going to wait till the next day to share Christ with her, but the Spirit moved in that room, and I knew that now was the time. And I said, God loves you. He cares for you. This body will die, but your spirit will live on, and you have an opportunity right now to decide where. You can have hope and peace and the promise of heaven. If you'll just ask him to come into your heart, he'll save you. He'll forgive you of your sins. If you believe he's the Son of God and rose from the grave and died on the cross for your sins, he will save you. So is that something you want to do today? She said, yes. She prayed to receive the Lord. Two weeks later, went to be, she went to be with the Lord in heaven. I'm so thankful for that. That's just a ripple effect of the gospel and of the ministry of the Baptist Children's Homes. Without Christ, her life would not have changed. So I got four little girls. They will never see in my house the things that I saw that a, poverty, a cycle of poverty and abuse has been broken. So you say, well, I don't have a Christian legacy. I, my dad was awful. My mom was awful. and It's just me. Your Christian legacy can start with you today. Make a decision for it to start with you. Because I didn't have that in my past, but I made a decision that my children wouldn't see those things, would not experience those things. They have no frame of reference about my past other than what they hear me share, like today. And what they experience going forward, I hope, will be nothing but positive because of Christ. Though those were bad things in my life, they brought him glory. In the same way, Christ dying on the cross, seemingly a terrible event in history, was entirely necessary. God had a grand plan, a divine purpose, a way in which he would be glorified for all eternity. Today, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you've experienced, but God's in it, and he loves you. He has a plan. And I don't know if you've got Jesus in your heart. Some people think they do, they, because their grandmother was saved, their mom was saved, they'd come to church, and they're okay. But if you've never asked Jesus to come into your heart, if you don't remember a time when you've asked him to save you from your sins, to be the Lord and Savior of your life, you need to do that. Heard one guy, you don't have to know the day, I know the day. That doesn't that just means I remembered it. Heard a guy say one time, he said, you know, I know I'm a Christian. I don't know when I became a Christian, but it's like I, I took off in Alabama and I landed in Texas. 
I don't know when I crossed over into Texas, but I know that's where I landed. He was saying, you know, I don't know when I became a Christian, but I know I am one today. I know Christ Christ loves me, saved me, and I've given my life to him. If you haven't done that, please make that decision today. Jesus made a choice to leave the glory of heaven and become God incarnate or in flesh to walk among us. He made a choice to die and reconcile all of humanity to to a right relationship with the Father. So whatever you're going through today, I pray that you find someone, whether it be Justin or staff member or friend, someone you can trust to share that with. Always be careful who you share things with, though. My daughter, she's in sixth grade, said be careful who you share things with. Because the friend you have today could be the one that shares that with other people tomorrow. It takes trust. So find someone you trust to share those things with. So I thank you for the opportunity to be here today. Uh, thank Justin for allowing me to come, finally. So uh, God loves you, and I'm going to turn the service over to him.